This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Zachary Carabell. Zachary is an investor, an author, and now a podcast host, and is surely the most thoughtful commentator in the United States on macroeconomic topics broadly defined. His columns and books are always interesting, provoking, and rigorous as they articulate his distinctive philosophy of American economic optimism. Moreover, his intellectual versatility is seen in the breadth of topics he has covered in outstanding books, from President Chester Arthur to the Suez Canal to the Cold War, and now on The Rabbi's Husband, Genesis 41. Zachary, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Why, thank you, Rabbi's Husband, Mark Gerson. So um, you picked a fascinating passage, which is um, Genesis 41, 46 to 53, and you picked it, um, you told me, because it was basically the uh, economics of Joseph how to manage a country during a famine. That seemed apropos our current weird, weird national and global moment. So what do you learn about in uh, Joseph's management of the famine? Um, after please telling us how he manages the famine, then tell us what do you and what do we learn about his management of the famine, which uh, may help us as uh, economic beings today. Part of the point of the passage is the time to manage a famine is before and not during. Right. So Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams, which none of the Pharaoh's dream interpreters could. And Joseph says there are going to be uh, seven fat years and then seven lean years. And he basically told Pharaoh, you're going to start managing the famine in seven years today. Right. And the, and the Pharaoh immediately agrees, which is interesting. And so they, they store up excess. You know, they live, they live the, the seven good years well. But during that time, they store up the excess so that when the seven lean years come, there's advanced preparation. Part of the problem of these lessons right now is it is inevitably a could have, should have, would have moment where you can retrospectively look back and go, wow, you know, it would have been better to have a stockpile of medical equipment or wow, it would have been better to have a more resilient healthcare system. And that, by the way, isn't just true in the United States in our highly partisan climate. It's true in multiple parts of the world. Learning those lessons in retrospect are not nearly as useful as it would have been a la the biblical passage to have learned them in advance. Well, because you're, you're right, because Joseph has the advantage of having a prophetic insight about what is going to happen in seven years, with no doubt about when it's going to happen, what's going to happen, and the specifics of the circumstance. Right. And and our our pandemic preparation was predicated on, I mean, before 2020 was predicated on a deep-seated belief amongst epidemiologists and global scientists and the World Health Organization that inevitably there would be a pandemic. But kind of like inevitably there will be an earthquake in Southern California, there's no date given to that. I used to joke that if you're going to predict the end of the world, just don't give a date because then no one can ever say that you're wrong. And that's where the problem comes in, right? Which is you know for sure that it will happen, but if the time frame in which that's going to happen is is well beyond a meaningful human time frame of how you plan, 
there's no way to get people to actually think about that and plan. I just finished a book that'll be out early next year about this storied white shoe Wall Street investment firm called Brown Brothers Harriman, which is one of the oldest. Oh, they've been working on that for a while. Okay, good. It's coming out next year. One of the points of it, given that it goes from 1800 to the present, the mantra of its founders was always be prepared for a crisis. And that the time to be prepared for a crisis is before a crisis, not during, partly from the adage that you just never know when there's going to be a crisis. You only know for certain that there will be one. And to be fair to the, the Joseph wisdom, it's certainly understood, and as understood, I think, in a lot of Torah commentary, that usually you're not blessed with certitude about date certain future crises. And what the crisis is going to be. Right. Because Joseph knows exactly when it's going to be. He knows it's not going to be an earthquake. It's not going to be a flood. It's not going to be disease. It's going to be famine. Right. But I think there, we probably can be a little harder on ourselves collectively about how we've dealt with the pandemic, just like we can always be harder on ourselves when there's financial market turmoil in that. Almost anybody who is in financial markets knows that there will be downturns of some breadth, depth, and significance that come with. You don't know when, you don't know why, but you know that that's a likely future contingency that you ought to be prepared for, if not literally, then at least emotionally. We did know that there was going to be a pandemic of a global scale, and there have been pandemics of a global scale. And not only were we not really prepared in terms of just the stockpiling and and we were prepared theoretically in terms of the systems, although this has been a little bit like Mike Tyson's famous adage of everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So we had a lot of plans on paper, but that didn't mean that anyone was able to execute them. But there was some awareness throughout that this crisis, this specific crisis, a global pandemic that was going to affect everybody and also the United States particularly, was in the realm of high likelihood. And, and I suppose that in certain ways, in terms of the preparation, it didn't matter what exactly the pandemic was. There would be certain things that you would need no matter what the actual agent was. Right. I mean, it didn't, it did, it didn't matter whether it was a respiratory disease or a flu or a retrovirus or something, an unknown virus. Right. So we, we, we can't use that as an excuse. You would have needed PPE among lots of other things, no matter what it was, because people would have ended up in the hospital regardless. Right. And look, I mean, this is part of the problem of global health systems. And I think one of the things that's fascinated me about the present is that Americans have often looked at more nationalized healthcare systems with a degree, at least on the left, with a degree of envy of like, oh, isn't it great that you know Western Europeans have these healthcare systems that provide unequivocal care, regardless of your ability to pay? In the for-profit world, the efficiency mantras as it applied to at least to hospitals and space was that any unused beds at a hospital were perceived at a, from a market perspective as a failure of efficiency. And so the, the push was don't have unused space. Unused space is, is a waste, as opposed to, in the Joseph sense, something you're keeping in reserve for a future problem. What's fascinating is that the same dynamics ended up being in place even in a public healthcare system in Europe, because there you had healthcare being a drain on public budgets. And then you had the same push toward efficiency, which is... So it was the same push towards more revenue, regardless of whether it was a private or public system. Exactly. Fascinating. Now, getting back to kind of your philosophy or your orientation as an optimist, and an optimist with 
great rigor and great reason always behind it and data always. I see some evidence of that in Joseph here as well, in that Joseph knows this horrendous famine is going to happen, and yet he has children. And when you have children, you're, you're saying, I believe in the future. So I think one of the, one of the challenges of our present is six months ago, no one could imagine this was going to happen. And six months later, we have a failure of imagination for this no longer being the dominant reality of all of our lives. And that's a human failing. There is this constant tendency to take your present and extrapolate it as your future. Sometimes that's a really good thing, like willful ignorance or willful belief that good times will lead to more good times can be a source of great energy and fuel to kind of reinvest and, you know, invent and go, wow, you know, the world's amazing. I'm going to spend all this effort to make it even more amazing. The problem is that when things are difficult, the reverse feedback loop ends up being completely enervating and it saps people's energy. And look, I have this with my kids now. I have a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old. And the 14-year-old in particular, you know, it's very hard, as it would have been for me at 14, to not believe that what is now true is now true, full stop. Like, this is the world. We're going to be never socializing. Nobody's ever going to go to a movie theater. We're going to be scared of public interaction. And that's simply going to be our reality in some weird miasmic forever. And look, we all know that's not true. But you have the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for lots of different things in the world. Right. But it's very hard in these moments not to extrapolate, not to believe that this is, this is our reality. And then you combine that in the United States with high levels of political polarization. You combine that with pre-existing beliefs that we're all coming undone anyway. And the added fuel, and I've kind of noticed this in some of the reaction to stuff I've been writing over the past six months, is that in really heated moments, when you say things like that, like, you know, this will pass or as difficult as this is, it is still transitory. The reaction to that statement is often anger. Anger, why? If you tell somebody, uh, yes, this is a, a terrible disease that's enacting medical costs, financial costs, social costs, but it's going to pass, what's the objection to that statement? Well, I think some of the anger is at a human level, right? Which is a life lost won't pass. It's a binary thing. If you're dead, you're dead. So don't tell me that you know, things will be better in two years because if you're dead, they won't be better in two years. Or if you lost a loved one, but that's not what you're saying when you have these conversations. No, but I think some of the pushback is that. It's, it's always that difficult tone of you're not honoring my suffering. You're not honoring just how hard things are. That like the, the saying of trying to give people ballast by trying to give some perspective of this is an incredibly difficult time, but it is not a new reality, right? It is a really difficult time. It is a current reality. I think people do sometimes respond to that by feeling like that doesn't honor the suffering. That doesn't honor the struggle. That doesn't honor just how bad things are. In fact, it's like a slap in the face. But what's the alternative to your statement and to your always rigorous optimism? If you say this will pass, okay, I understand you're not honoring my, but I don't really understand. I mean, it's, if, if, if you say what you just said is factually true, yes, you said this is a terrible moment and it's going to pass, and therefore we can plan for the future. We can be like Joseph and literally or proverbially have children. You know, this is when Joseph had children in the famine. He had two sons in the famine. And uh, it wasn't a matter of dishonoring anyone's suffering. It was a matter of acknowledging that this will pass and that we have an obligation to the generations that come in front of us. Joseph presumably failed to have kids, and he had two of them. Right. Or the even simpler statement of literally life will go on. Our collective lives will continue, even if some of our lives do not. And that that's the only alternative, at least in my view, right? That's the only alternative affirmatively for trying to ensure that the future we create now in a difficult present is not a worse future. Of course. 
you have to hope for a better future in order to create that future. And if we don't work to create that future, whoever we are at any given place or time, that future will not exist. Right. Now, the pushback I get from people who are genuinely more pessimistic, and I suppose it's fair to characterize me as optimistic, but it is totally accurate to say that you know, my optimism is tempered, I hope, by a heavy, heavy dose of realism. You know, it's not a Pollyannish, oh my God, things are great. I call your optimism a deeply rigorous optimism. Right. And I appreciate that. I think that's a, I, think I, I, I will take, I will inhabit those words. Some people say that change happens because of the Jeremiah's, right? That's a whole other biblical question, right? Do, do the Jeremiah's work? Do they get people to change? Are they effective? because they cut through the noise and they go to the nth point and therefore people go, oh, okay, right. I've got to pay attention to this. I don't believe in the world that we're in that Jeremiah's are particularly effective. And maybe they were effective 2,500 years ago in a different context for different people at a different time. But I don't find that it's kind of like what, what emotions lead to change in your own life. I don't think fear if prolonged, is anything other than destructive. I think fear as a wake-up call, hey, there, you got something here is happening that's going to harm you, stop. That can be very effective, right? Be careful. There's a disease out there. Don't be attentive to your behavior in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be. That's a youthful. Well, you're so right. The commandment that is most frequently used in the Torah is do not fear, 80 times, because it must have been so prevalent, so dangerous. If, if it wasn't a ubiquitous concern, the biblical author would not need to mention it 80 times. Once or twice would have been more than enough. Right. No, I mean, that's always, that is one of those great truisms. If you want to know how people were actually behaving, look at the injunctions to tell them not to do things. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the Bible tells us 80 times, don't fear. It tells us in the Torah 36 times to love the stranger. It never tells us to love our children. Right. Because no one ever needed to be told to love our children. It's so natural and organic, just like no one ever went to a doctor and had the doctor say, whatever you do tomorrow, go to the bathroom. Right. It never happened. I think right now, and I say this both intentionally provocatively, but also genuinely, that we are gripped by a kind of a global panic, that we're in a global fear, which is in no way to understate the legitimate risk that we're in in a pandemic. But there's a difference between that and fear. And I constantly go back to Franklin Roosevelt's, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. And that was with the full found awareness that there was something to fear, right? It wasn't like, oh, you ninnies. No, yeah, he wasn't saying there, there, yeah, that the world's filled of ghosts and goblins and sounds in the dark. He, he knew very well there was a Great Depression. And yet still, he said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he goes on in that speech to talk about how fear enervates and prevents action. And that was the point, that fear is paralytic, that fear is a shutting down and a closing in and therefore precludes solutions, or, or the solutions that it engenders are either very short-term, very reactive, or very selfish. I, I think you're calling up a, a President Roosevelt's exactly right, and I think it actually corresponds with the Joseph story, because it says Joseph passed through the land in, the, in your passage, I think showing us that's what a leader does. Like He was living with the people. He was among the people. He wasn't just taking up in the palace, which was certainly his to do at that point when he immediately became the number two guy in Egypt. He went to the land and basically said to the people, I'm here with you and this is what we have to do. The text doesn't tell us everything. It probably doesn't tell us most things, but we can presume that he he waged a campaign of sorts to educate people about what was coming, what they had to do to prepare, because it's not so easy to save a lot during a famine. And again, part of the point of being prepared for a crisis is the awareness of fear during a crisis. 
the point of being ready a priori is that we know that it is a very human individual and collective reaction in the face of genuine threat to be scared. The way to offset that is to have resources to draw on and then to be able to draw on them. You know, we've, we've done that a little bit collectively in terms of money spent by multiple governments around the world to try to cushion some of the extreme economic blow that this has created. Although, you know, one could argue about whether that's been sufficient. It's been necessary. It's not clear that it's been sufficient. But the, the larger issue is that in the midst of a storm, it's very hard to take measured steps to build shelter. That's the world we're in right now. And if anything, you know, that who's younger or older or whatever, that we could learn from this moment, it's you're really, really creating massive future issues by expecting anyone to meet with equanimity or forethought or deep consciousness a future contingency, a future threat in the moment that it happens. Right. So if, if now we're in, um, we have obviously a very real, very big problem, yet you point out that alongside of that is fear and fear of the kind that President Roosevelt warned against. Right. And I look, if I, if I were God in a secular sense and I could help, I would say it is incumbent upon all of us to try to be less scared. And I would say that, you know, I say that to myself about if I get sick, I say that to, you know, it's like someone, if you're a doctor dealing with cancer patients, you know, there's a, a deep awareness that fear and a, and a deeply pessimistic sense of outcomes is a powerful negative in terms of actual health outcomes. The same is true individually about a crisis. The same is true societally, right? Saying try to be less scared is not saying there's nothing to be scared of. Right. The military is really good at this. They train and train and train and train people for that moment when they're in the heat of a battle with the full awareness of they do that because it is a totally natural instinct in the middle of a battle to be scared that you're going to be killed or harmed. And it, it takes an immense act of will to try to put that in context or at least to be able to say no to that. Saying no to one's fear is not saying that the trigger of the fear isn't real. It's the recognition that there, there's no cookies there. So you have all the authority in the world in a secular context now, hypothetically. You're giving a nationwide TV address. Everyone's looking to you to say, okay, we heard Zach say that there's plenty of grounds for fear, but yet fear can be uh, deeply demobilizing, demotivating, and there's a good reason why the Bible prohibits it so often. And we're there now. So people ask you in the press conference, okay, got it. How should we act differently? We should all be like literally at a micro level and a macro level, literally coming together to try to figure out, okay, what do we do now? And what do we do now cannot purely be self-protective. It also has to be collectively constructive. And it has to be not entirely what we can't do, but also what we can do. Because I don't think human beings are going to ever, you know, there's a lot of discussion about this as college students, you know, we're talking about this on a day at a time when a lot of college students are coming back to campus. And there's a lot of collective shaming of the behavior. Like, oh my God, I can't imagine. I'm like, well, how can they possibly be partying, right? Like, are they idiots? Are they unaware of the risks? And part of it is, if the only thing you offer to people month after month after month is self-protection, that is just not going to be sufficient to motivate people to move forward, right? There has to be a collective, okay, what do we do now? What can we do? How do we make this possible? What is a way forward that actually allows as much life to be lived as humanly possible in the face of a challenge that could go on for another, you know, year to year and a half. And there's a dearth of that. You know, it seems like just kind of window dressing, but it's not. It would be shifting the conversation from what do we do to protect ourselves 
to what do we do to live in the face of a threat? Right. So let's take something very granular then. Um, indoor dining in New York City. What would you say about that? What can be done at a public level to incentivize people at private businesses to have really good ventilation systems? Or how much of that outdoor dining can be expanded throughout the fall and winter by changing the emergency regulatory frameworks so that you can have heat lamps on outdoor dining and continue to expand the capacity, right? Some of that actually, I think, will go on and is going on. But a lot of it went on because a lot of people individually said, hey, we've got to do this, not because government or even large businesses took the lead. You know, it's much more like the evolution of Uber, where a need met a solution and regulations had to give way to that reality. But it would be a recognition of that. And I, and I do think, look, I mean, this is my own personal take in all this. Elected officials in particular, but businesses as well, and individuals as well, should not be striving for zero risk. I had a professor at Harvard named Joseph Nye, who's a really interesting guy who used to say in his lectures, perfect security only exists in maximum security prisons and the grave, and we wouldn't want to live in either place. And perfect security should not be, as, as much as possible, should be the goal, but, but zero should not. So the, yeah, so there's complexity, there are trade-offs. And uh, so Zach, you have such an extraordinary breadth of intellectual interests and achievements. Your books, each of which is so rigorous, just like your writing, are on such a diverse array of topics. So as a historian, which is kind of one third of what you are professionally, what are the historical analogs to this present situation and what can we learn from them? So first off, I would say there are no historical analogs to the present situation in the sense that this is the first globally experienced instantaneous crisis. So the human race in toto has never confronted the same crisis simultaneously in real time, full stop. And any historical analogies should honor that reality, meaning whatever we look to in the past should honor the fact that we are living in a unique present. And to some degree, we're always living in a unique present. I don't believe history repeats itself. Historians repeat each other. I totally agree. Absolutely right. And there are echoes and rhymes. You know, the point of your exercise in looking back to Torah passages is not that is exactly what we should be doing now. It's what is the kernel of truth or lesson or learning that can be adapted and applied, not transposed. So I don't think there's any analog to the current present because I think the feedback loop of information and knowledge, you know, if, if China hadn't shut down an entire city in March, it is an open question if any of us would have done anything like the lockdowns that we've done because nobody had ever done them before. And the World Health Organization said, don't do them. I'm not saying whether it was wrong or right. I'm simply saying because this was global and simultaneous, there is a global feedback loop happening here. You know, we're watching what other people are doing. We're learning. We're rejecting. We're, we're trying to figure out. We're also comparing a lot, right? A lot of our sense of how we're doing is based on our sense of how other people are doing, right or wrong sense. There's a lot of global comps going on here. Like somehow the Olympics got canceled in 2020, but we're all on the COVID table. Who gets the gold for best COVID response? You know, Norway wins. Ah. You know, I'm tempted at times to look at history and go, we should be mindful of the inverse relationship between our massive global reaction and the actual harm this has done. And I say that with all due empathy toward the harm it's done. I'm just saying, if you're a Martian and you're looking at the present and you're looking at today and you're looking at 1957, where there was another flu pandemic and you're looking at 1918, and then you start going back and back and back and back, 
you know, the sheer levels of harm and death in the past relative to the sheer levels of harm and death now are still over an arc of time, much less in the present. And you only get to live in your present, right? It doesn't necessarily help to say to someone, oh, you know, grandma had it worse, so you should, you know, stop your belly aching. And I'm not saying that, and it could be heard that way. Back to that sense of perspective, we should be aware of the fact that part of what's going on is that we are less resilient in the face of death. And we should learn that lesson going forward because until otherwise notified, we are all going to die. And, you know, societies that were more fatalistic because they had no control over it had more language and discussion. You know, the whole point of a lot of the, you know, the Torah and all of it was trying to help human beings grapple with their mortality. One of the wonders of the modern world is all the technological innovations and healthcare innovations and science and global innovations have allowed for more people at at a moment in time to live more securely and more healthfully and longer and without nearly as much threat that they're going to die of disease and war and famine. But, you know, the downside is we don't know how to talk about or meet the reality of death with anything resembling a degree of, if not equanimity, then at least, you know, the lack of hysteria. Zachary, thank you for such an interesting uh, conversation about, uh, the applications of the Joseph story to the present day. And the uh, concluding question always goes from one sacred text, well, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, I uh, just ran into this guy with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as an investor, a historian, and an economic philosopher, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? So I'm going to answer that as, as it occurs to me in the face of that question. One is we all need to be more humble about what it is we think we know. And two, that the thin veneer of what we call civilization that there is a gossamer quality to it, that it is simultaneously deep and profound, but also fragile. And I say that, again, not because I am worried particularly that it's all going to unravel, but because I think we all need to be cognizant that the reason why biblical texts remain resonant is that while there's been massive structural change in how humanity lives, I don't know that there's been massive emotional change in how humanity is. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just a thing. And I think I have learned sometimes in a way that has been saddening, but sometimes in a way that's been, I hope, kind of enlightening that, you know, no matter how successful people are or how rich they are or how poor they are or how powerful they are, they remain as complicated and variegated and full of a roiling mix of emotions as everybody and all of us do. And honoring that humanity, I think is vital if you're not going to go crazy in this world. Absolutely. Well, Zachary, thank you, as always, for such an interesting conversation about so many different topics and uh, for sharing your wisdom with us here at The Rabbi's Husband. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a cool idea and a, and a good peg for a series of compelling conversations. You are the God of the